Their president. Our vision is to see the word of God flow powerfully through every church to every nation. And our sweet spot as a ministry is the hearts, lives, and ministries of pastors. Uh, we train pastors who will also train and equip other pastors in their local areas to preach God's word with God's heart. And God is doing a, a beautiful work building movements of his word in nations in every continent. And uh, it's a joy to be a part of that ministry. And I'm, I'm grateful for how his word is flowing powerfully through your church here in Janesville. Let's just pray now that uh, God would speak to our hearts as his word is open to us. Father, thank you for your word, which is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. May it pierce into our hearts this morning, reveal our thoughts and intentions, and lead us uh, to Jesus, who alone is able to save, sanctify, and transform us for your glory. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you heard of, of Dr. Richard Kimball? Does that name ring a bell? He's a fictional character, but very well known to many, many Americans, especially those of my generation. He was a vascular surgeon from Chicago, played by Harrison Ford, who comes home to find out that his wife has been murdered by a one-armed assailant. The killer evades capture, and Dr. Kimball is framed for the murder of his wife and sentenced to death. But while he's being taken to the state penitentiary, the bus crashes and Dr. Kimball manages to escape, and the remainder of the action in this thrilling movie centers around Dr. Kimball's desperate attempt to find the man who murdered his wife before the U.S. Marshals catch up with him. He's the fugitive. And the movie of that name was nominated for seven Academy Awards back in the 90s because we're obsessed with the story of an innocent man who's on the run, wrongfully convicted, fighting for his life and for justice. We want to see him vindicated, don't we? But in real life, what would you do if a fugitive showed up on your doorstep in the middle of the night? Would you take him in, provide safe harbor? Would you want to be found protecting a man on the run? That's just the kind of story we have in front of us in God's word this morning. We've heard parts of it read by Lacey. And if you'd open your Bibles there again to 1 Samuel 21, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. And it can feel like one of those long chase scenes that, that just keeps going on and on at the end of a movie. We've been watching this story unfold for several chapters now. There are two kings in Israel, one named Saul whose kingdom has failed and is being torn from him because of his refusal to listen to the word of God. And the other is a young man named David, who's not so young anymore. Did you know that 15 years elapsed between the time that David was anointed king back in 1 Samuel 15 to the time when he's actually elevated to the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 5? That's a long time 
to wait. And most of that time is spent in the wilderness, on the run, being pursued by this madman, Saul, who refuses to relinquish his power. Before God's anointed king can enter into the glory of his kingdom, he has to go through many sufferings. Does that sound like a familiar theme in scripture to you? God will protect, God will preserve his anointed king, but he has to endure much suffering before he can enter into his kingdom. And so do those who would follow God's anointed king. There's a choice to be made for everyone in these pages and everyone in this room. Which king will you follow? Who's the true king? Who will claim your allegiance, your loyalty? What are you willing to go through to suffer in this life in order to remain loyal to this king and to enter into his kingdom? Are you willing to bear the reproach he must bear? The story of these three chapters unfolds in three movements. In the first is in chapter 21, verse 1, through chapter 22, verse 6, where we are seeing the spotlight on this fugitive king. Last week we saw in chapter 20 how David was forced to flee for his life. There's no question. Jonathan has confirmed it. Saul will not rest until David is dead. So David flees to a place called Nob, where the king, where the priest... Ahimelech and the tabernacle are currently residing. And the moment Ahimelech sees David, Ahimelech starts trembling. Why is David all alone? Why are there no men with him? Something doesn't seem right. So David fabricates this story. And the writer of 1 Samuel isn't concerned to tell us whether David was right or wrong in deceiving Ahimelech. David is intentionally vague in verse 2. He says, I'm on a mission from the king, and he's commanded me not to let anyone know what I'm doing. I'm going to be meeting up with my young men at a certain place in a, in a little bit. But in the meantime, David says, I'm starving. What do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. There's a problem. There's only one kind of bread on hand, and it's the consecrated bread, and that's not available for just anyone to eat. But David is not just anyone. He is the man whom God has anointed to be king. And scrupulosity about the law must never be allowed to hinder the advance of God's kingdom. So after confirming that David and his men were in a consecrated state, the priest agrees to give him the holy bread, the bread of the presence, as it's called, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away, verse 6. It is a sign of God's faithful provision for his anointed king as he's being hunted down by his enemy. Just as the Israelites were fed bread from heaven, manna, that rained down while they were in the wilderness on their way to the promised land, now David is being fed bread from heaven because the tabernacle was a representation of heaven. 
And we also should remember this every time we receive the Lord's Supper. For Jesus is the bread who came down from heaven to give life to the world. He's God's provision for our spiritual sustenance as we go through our wilderness journey. In fact, if you fast forward a thousand years in biblical history, you'll find that the very first words of the New Testament in the Gospel of Matthew are these. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's how important it is for us to see the connection between David and his greater son, Jesus Matthew tells the story of how one day on the Sabbath, Jesus' disciples were going through the grain fields, and they were very hungry, so they were plucking heads of grain to eat. And the Pharisees were indignant because they saw this as a violation of the Sabbath law. And what does Jesus point them back to? To this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. What is Jesus doing? He's showing that there's a connection between what is happening in David's life at that time and what is happening in Jesus' life. Just as David is suffering on the way to his throne, so Jesus, the Messiah, must suffer. And just as David was given the bread of the presence to eat because he was God's anointed king, so must the needs of Jesus and his disciples take priority over the Pharisees' scruples about the Sabbath because Jesus is God's king. He is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, looking back at the story in 1 Samuel 21, we find that there's a sinister figure lurking in the shadows. We're introduced to him in verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. There's an ominous note here. The Edomites were descendants of Esau. They were arch rivals of Israel going back generations. They refused to give Israel safe passage when they were on their journey to the promised land long ago. And the name Doeg sounds just like the Hebrew word for worry. And we should be worried right about now for David. Because the chief of Saul's shepherds, one of Saul's henchmen, is recording this conversation and tracking David's movements. And notice David doesn't have anything with which to protect himself, but God provides for and protects his anointed king. In verse 8, David says to Ahimelech, Have you not here a spear or sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, It is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none here but that. And David said, oh, there is none like that sword. Give it to me. And off he goes, carrying the sword of Goliath, the giant he killed, right into, guess where? Goliath's hometown of Gath. David, what are you thinking? Marching straight into enemy territory. Carrying the sword of the man you killed. 
Could this be a sign of just how desperate David is right now? He imagines he'll be safer in a Philistine town than out there where Saul is. He's being forced to choose between Israel's archenemies and Israel's reigning monarch. David opts for the place where Goliath's headless torso is buried. Well, he might have thought he could remain incognito, but these Philistines have been listening to Israel's greatest hits. And in no time, the servants of Achish, the king of Gath, are saying in verse 11, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And when David heard these words, he became very, very afraid of King Achish of Gath. The text says in verse 13 that he was in their hands, so they must have had David in custody. How's he going to get out of this predicament? Well, he, he has a brilliant idea. Let me feign insanity. I'm going to act like a madman. He starts scribbling graffiti all over the gates. He lets his saliva run down on his beard. He's drooling and frothing at the mouth and raving like a lunatic. And when the king says this, he says, look, you can see this man is crazy. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Are you going to let him come into my house? And clearly, the king's servants must be idiots indeed because they let the man who killed Goliath go free. David hightails it out of Gath, and he goes to this place called the Cave of Adullam. We find him there at verse 1 of chapter 22. His brothers and all his family hear about his escape, and they gather with him in that cave. Keep in mind, I've been in, in Petra in Jordan. There are caves there big enough to house this whole church, some very large caves. And so his brother and his family is gathering there. And then look at verse 2 of chapter 22, where we see the formation of David's kingdom taking shape, the formation of his army. Look at the people who came to him in verse 2. I, I love this verse. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Is that your, your vision for church growth here in Janesville? Please, Lord, bring us everyone who's in distress, everyone who's in debt, and everyone who's bitter in soul. These are the people we want to have join us on the mission of Jesus. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. A mighty band of warriors, the desperate, those drowning in debt, the bitter in soul, sounds a lot like the disciples Jesus first called to himself. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots, revolutionaries, sons of thunder, Mary Magdalene. Let's just pause and think about this for a minute. If you encounter David for the first time in Nob, or in Gath, or at the cave of Adullam, do you think you would have quickly recognized him as the kind of king you'd want to follow? 
this fugitive, begging bread, borrowing a sword, no place to lay his head at night. He's not looking like the kind of king that we'd want for a leader, is he? But in God's kingdom, you can't judge by appearances. Remember what the Lord said to Samuel back in chapter 16, verse 7? Do not look on his appearance, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God saw what was going on in David's heart during this time. And we could see what is happening in David's heart too because David was keeping a prayer journal throughout this whole ordeal in his life. In Psalm 56, we have a record of what he was thinking and praying when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And we know that he was very afraid as the enemies of God were trampling on him and attacking him so proudly. But what did David do with his fears? Listen to Psalm 56, verse 3 and 4. David said, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? David sees his enemies are injuring his cause all day long. He knows they have nothing but evil intentions toward him. They're stirring up strife. They're lurking. They're watching his steps. They're waiting to take his life. But he still believes that his God is ultimately going to protect him and defend him because God has promised to give him the kingdom. He knows that as he tosses at night on the floor of that cave and as he cries his, his, his head to sleep, that God is putting his tears in his bottle and storing them. So he can declare with confidence in Psalm 56, verse 9, then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know, that God is for me. In God, whose word I praise. In the Lord, whose word I praise. In God, I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere men do to me, he says. Listen. David is learning in his desperation how to cry out to God and to wait upon God for deliverance. Deliverance, salvation, comes after desperation. And David is learning that God is a refuge to which he can continually come. He's putting his trust in the Lord, just like his greater son did when all the crowd shouted, crucify him. When they mocked him and beat him and spit on him and stripped him of his clothes and nailed him to a brutal cross like he was the madman of the universe exposed before the, the glaring eyes of the crowd with a makeshift placard over his head that said, this is the king of the Jews. Jesus didn't look like the kind of king his people expected. But he was trusting in the Lord for his deliverance. He was committing his spirit into God's hands. He was praying the Psalms of David even as he was bleeding out forgiveness for the sins of his people. 
And he was establishing his kingdom from the despicable humiliation of the cross. So look at David the fugitive. And look at Jesus. And learn this lesson. God's chosen king will not always look impressive in the eyes of this world. And the people God chooses to follow his king, we won't always look impressive either. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. That's the way our God works. That's why I was encouraged by your announcement today, Connie, and the, the testimony you gave and the work that, that you're encouraging this congregation to be involved in because this is, this is how God builds this kingdom. It's, it's different. His values turn the values of this world upside down. So don't judge by appearances. Choose this day whom you will serve. Follow the king who puts his trust in the Lord. The story might look bad at the moment, but the one who trusts in the Lord can say, this I know, God is for me. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That brings us to the second movement of our narrative this morning, because the truth of a Christian's daily experience in this world is that if God is for us, there actually is an enemy who stands against us. That certainly was the case for David. At the beginning of chapter 22, he leaves his mom and dad in the safekeeping of the king of Moab, where, remember, David's great-grandmother Ruth came from? David has to keep moving. He has to keep being on the run, and he ends up in the forest of Hereth, in the land of Judah, in verse 5, and Saul gets word of David's whereabouts. That's when the spotlight turns on Saul, who we see in the second movement is a furious tyrant, a furious tyrant, in verses 6 through 23. Saul is seething with self-pity. He's consumed with Paranoia. We heard how he spoke to his servants in verses 7 and 8. Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? Saul's doing exactly what Samuel warned many chapters earlier that the king they chose would do. He'll take from some in order to give to others in order to consolidate his power. And that's what Saul's trying to do. And he's angry. He's full of self-pity. He says, no one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. Why aren't you telling me what's going on? None of you is sorry for me. Isn't that just kind of pathetic? <laughs> just this sniveling king. Why aren't anyone sorry for me? Why doesn't anyone feel sad for me? No one discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me, which he has not, to lie in wait as at this day. Whenever a leader is consumed with self-pity, 
and paranoia, it becomes a perfect breeding ground for an opportunistic bully like Doeg to step onto the scene. Look at verse 9. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, answered, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath of Philistine. Saul is enraged. So he summons Ahimelech and all his family and all the priests in that region to come before him and picture the scene. All of these priests wearing the linen ephod, standing before this raging, furious tyrant, a true madman. And Saul verbally undresses Ahimelech in front of them all, calling him son of a high tub. He won't even say his name. And he indicts him with conspiracy against the king. And through all of this, Ahimelech knows whom he will serve. He doesn't dishonor Saul, but he will not be disloyal to David. He's faithful to the one God has chosen to be king. Verse 14, Ahimelech answered the king, who among all your servants is so faithful as David? He hasn't done any wrong to you, Saul. And he's your son-in-law. And he's captain over your bodyguard. He's honored in your house. Is today the first time I've inquired of God for him? No, I've been praying for David for a long time. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. David had shielded what was really going on from Ahimelech, and Ahimelech was just doing his job as priest. But Saul is furious with rage, and he commands his guard who's standing by to put Ahimelech to death along with all the priests of the Lord. Why? Look at verse 17. Because he says, their hand is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. And this is such an egregious evil that Saul is commanding all these priests to be slaughtered that all the king's servants refuse to obey the king's order. They just, they cannot go along with such a dastardly deed. But remember that wicked man we met back in the previous chapter? Here he is, back in the king's court, and in verse 18, the king said to Doag, you turn and strike the priests. And Doag the Edomite turned and struck down the priests and killed on that day 85 persons who wore the king's ephod, or wore the linen ephod. And he, had to, he didn't stop there. He went to Nob, the city of the priests, and he committed genocide. Killed the whole city, men and women, children and infants, oxes, donkeys, and sheep. He put them all to the sword. The very king who refused to completely destroy the Amalekites back in chapter 15, the enemies of the Lord, Saul wouldn't destroy them. Now he's using a foreigner to kill the priests of the Lord. And they're completely destroyed. Can you see how Saul has become an antichrist? 
He will stop at nothing to preserve his own kingdom, even wiping out the priesthood. But he doesn't succeed completely because one of the sons of Ahimelech by the name of Abiathar escapes and he flees to David. And in verse 21, he informs David of the massacre of the priests and David is devastated. You can read David's reflections on this in Psalm 52, which begins with the words, why do you boast of evil, O you mighty man? And, and he, he talks about the ultimate destruction that will come upon the doags of this world. And David takes responsibility for this. Look at verse 22. David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doag the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. David is so sorry, so grief-stricken at what is happening here. But listen to what he says. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. I want to focus your attention on those last words for a moment. Hear the assurance of the true king to this young man who has just lost his father and witnessed the slaughtering of all these priests by a wicked tyrant. He says, with me, you will be in safekeeping. You will be safe with me, says God's anointed king. The greater son of David, the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep, put it like this in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. In this world of evil tyrants who rage against God and hate his people, we can rest assured that we will be safe with Jesus. We will be kept in his hand. Nothing, no one can snatch us out of the hand of our good shepherd. God is for us. And if God is for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? I mean, in this world, we are always like sheep to be slaughtered. We're under the scrutiny of the ruler of this world. We've got a target on our backs because of our faithfulness to Jesus. But listen to what Paul says, reflecting on Psalm 56, which David wrote in that cave of Adullam. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we're going to go through many tribulations. Be patient in tribulation, it says on your wall. We're going to go through them as the offspring of the serpent, 
seeks to bite and destroy the people God has redeemed for himself. But our Lord Jesus will bring us safely through those troubles into his heavenly kingdom. We will be safe with Jesus. And let that inform where your loyalties lie in this world. There is a cost to following Jesus. There is an enemy who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. There is a lion who roars, but there is a shepherd who can kill the lion with his bare hands, and he will keep us safe in his hands as long as we stay with him. He's got lots of ways to rescue us and deliver us. And that brings me to the last movement this morning, an unexpected deliverance. We see this in chapter 23. And I want to just give you a summary of this chapter in a nutshell. It's in the second half of verse 14. This is the key verse of this whole chapter, maybe of this whole narrative that we've been looking at this morning. It would be great to underline it or highlight it in your Bible. Just look at the second part of verse 14 in chapter 23. And what does it say? Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. There it is. That, that's the summary of all this. Saul is seeking David every day, but God does not give David into Saul's hand. And in this chapter, we see that God uses David to save the inhabitants of a town called Kila from a Philistine invasion. Invasion. Saul hears that David is in Kila, and it's a town that has gates and bars. So Saul thinks this is our opportunity. We can trap David in there. We can set a siege around that city so that he can't get out, and we can destroy that whole city with David in it. David asks the Lord, are these people of Kila going to be loyal to me? After all, I just delivered them. I just saved their lives. Are they going to stick with me? And the Lord says, nope, Saul is going to come and he's going to seize that city and the people aren't going to be loyal to you, David. They're flaky. They don't appreciate what you've done. They're going to surrender you. And so David is forced to flee with all his men and to go wherever they can find any kind of safety in the wilderness of Ziph, just getting away from Saul again. And that's when God sends Jonathan one more time at just the right time to encourage David. Look at verses 15 through 18 of, of chapter 23. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horish. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horish, and Jonathan went home. Now there are plenty of informants among the people of Ziph who let Saul know where David has been spotted and Saul keeps going after him. And David's living in the wilderness, hiding behind a rock, hurrying to get away from Saul. But by the end of the chapter, if you read the rest of the story, you see that God provides deliverance for David by bringing a distraction to Saul. There's Philistines invading somewhere else and Saul decides, I'm going to go after the Philistines and he leaves David alone in the the wilderness. God has surprising ways to deliver his people. He can deliver us even by using our enemies 
if he wants. And David called the place where he was delivered in verse 28, the rock of escape, the rock of separation, where Saul went one way and I went another. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. God is able to rescue and save his anointed king even through his enemies. God is a God of salvation and deliverance. What's the key takeaway for us from this passage? There will be many times in this life, because we're kind of in a wilderness here, there will be many times when it will seem like following Jesus doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It will feel costly. It will feel confusing at times. It will feel feel humiliating. You will feel like a fugitive in this world when you follow Jesus. But you have to remember who's writing the story of your life. Just like Jesus always remembered who was directing his path. Imagine stepping into a three-hour-long movie and you step in halfway through the storyline and you're just in there for like three seconds. And then you write to the director and lecture him on the problem with his storyline. You've just seen this little piece. You don't even know the beginning from the end. And sometimes our lives are like this. We're, we're only here for a moment. We're only here for a short time. We only see a little bit of what God is doing. But God is always working in a thousand ways we cannot see. Just like he was doing in David's life. Just like he did in Jesus' life. He leads his chosen servants on a path that zigzags here and there and often looks like a path of suffering. But we're destined for glory. That's where it's leading. In this world, it won't always feel like following Jesus is the path to victory or the path to safety or the path of peace. Sometimes you're going to feel like your boss is the real king of your life. He or she is the person you most feel like you need to please. You'll be tempted to see your boss as your provider and to follow their agenda because you'll think that the most important thing is that I stay safe in my career and that I advance in my career. That's the way I'm going to experience a life that is flourishing. But remember, Jesus is your true king. Jesus Or maybe it's your friends, your peers, and you feel like they're the real kings of your life. You want to fit in with them. You want to be popular. You want to look cool. So you end up using language around your friends that you'd be very embarrassed to say in front of your grandma or grandpa just to show that you're one of them. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend and you want to be with that person so badly You want to feel loved and wanted, so you're willing to compromise what you know is best in order to get that temporary sense of love or whatever it is throughout your life. In every area of your life, you will be faced with choices. Who is your real king? Who will claim your allegiance? 
The king we follow was despised and rejected by this world, and we will be also. They dragged him outside the city gates of Jerusalem, and he bled there for our salvation. But I love how the writer of the Hebrews calls us to follow Jesus there in that place of suffering. He says in Hebrews 13, verse 13, Therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's my call to you today, River, River Hills Community Church. Let us bear the reproach of our King Jesus. Even when we feel like fugitives in this world, even when we feel like we're being pursued by an enemy who is fierce, even when we know there's a target on our backs, remember, we will be safe with Jesus. Through suffering, he will bring us safely into glory. And a hundred years from now, 10,000 years from now, you will not regret a single choice you've made to be loyal and faithful to your king. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, to you belongs all the praise and glory. We thank you that we see the whole story in the Bible of how your suffering is going to lead to everlasting rejoicing and glory for your people. So help us to follow you through this valley of the shadow of death and to continue to know that you keep us in the palm of your hands. May your loyal love toward us inspire loyalty in our hearts towards you, King Jesus. You are our king, and we give you our praise. Amen.